0: Well, as we go forward in worship now, we want to pay attention to God's Word. And so we have four passages that we're going to read this morning. Our main text this morning is Isaiah 7, verse 1 through 9, verse 7. We're not going to read all of that. We'll just read a selection. So we'll read uh, Isaiah 7, verses 1 to 14. And I think what you'll see in there is a call to faith, a call to trust God. And so the other text that we're going to read In Deuteronomy, first it tells us why we can trust God. It shows us God's power and his love that he's someone that can be trusted. When we come to Romans 4, verses 20 and 21, we'll see again that God calls us to live by faith. And we see the example that Abraham himself provides. And then lastly, in Romans 3, verse 28, we again see that the Lord requires faith of us, and that's all that he requires of us. And so coming forward to read will be Sharon to read Isaiah 7, Davis will read for us from Deuteronomy 4, Jane from Romans 4, and then Sarah Ruttman from Romans 3. Let me pray that God would open our eyes to understand his word. God, we know once again that in ourselves we are blind to your truth and to your word. By your spirit, God, open our hearts now. Open the eyes of our hearts now, Lord, so that we can see beautiful things in your word. Would you also strengthen me, God, to preach your word faithfully and with power? Lord, help me not just to proclaim your truth this morning as something that is meant for the head, but not also for the heart. Rather, God, let me preach to the heart even this morning as your word calls each of us to faith. Lord, I pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Isaiah seven, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria and Pekah the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah. Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Ramalia. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, have devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will be not firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel.
2: Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 39. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, as anything so great as this ever has this ever happened, Or has anything like this ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand in an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds? like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from, the, from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose your descendants before them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you, and to bring you into their land and give it to you in your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other.
1: Romans 4 20 to 21. Do not disgust him, made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave his glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Romans 3, verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law.
0: Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the reading, what Isaiah 7 to 9 is really all about is a call to faith. It is a call to trust in God. Now, to preach this morning about the call to faith, about the call to trust in God, can actually be a very tricky thing for us uh, 21st century American Christians. After all, we have many books written about the faith. We have much truth that is very accessible to us. We have sermons online. We have blogs on the internet. We have books being published every day. And so we, as Christians in modern-day America, can think very highly of our own faith if we've read many books, if we've listened to many sermons, if we've read many blogs. We think that we know a lot. And so we think, therefore, we must be a people of faith. And yet, I think as we'll discover, Ahaz also thought of himself as a person of faith. He knew the Bible's answers to various things. He knew how he was supposed to relate to God. And yet, in his mind and in his heart, God was not real. God was not a a real person with whom he had to deal. God was not a real person who could save his real nation. Rather, God was simply some nice set of principles or ideas that he had been taught. He knew certain things that he was supposed to do, but because he did not comprehend the reality of God, he didn't have the power to live as he ought. Beloved, the most basic way that sanctification is supposed to work, that we as Christian people are supposed to grow in holiness, is that we believe what God says, And therefore, we do what God says. That's the way it works. We first believe, and then after we believe, then we do. Now, the order here is all important. First, we do have to believe God. That is, we have to trust him. We have to take him at his word. Only when we have first done that can we actually obey him as we ought. So let me just take... One example this morning, I'm going to go with Matthew 5 9, one of the Beatitudes. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's say you're in a situation where you're upset with someone. You feel like they've done something against you, and you don't just want to go and forgive them, you don't want to be a peacemaker. You feel like you're right to hold a grudge. You tell yourself it feels good to hold this grudge. After all, I'm the one in the right. They did something wrong. Holding this grudge feels good because it reminds me that I'm the person that's right here, and it reminds me how much lesser this other person is. And so, so your impulse as a human being is simply to cross your arms and wait for the other person to take the first step, right? That's what makes sense. That's what feels good. That's what's right. The only problem with that is that it's ungodly. It is sinful. Again, God says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. We, as God's people, are to be peacemakers. We are to be people who go to others when we are in conflict with them and try to make peace. And so the question for any person in that situation, any person with that sort of grudge or resentment in their hearts is, What are you going to do? Are you going to obey God and strive to be a peacemaker? Or are you going to go your own way and just be content with his grudge? Say that this is just the way things are. Well, the only way you could possibly become a peacemaker is if you really believe what God says in Matthew 5, verse 9, when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So you right now, at the moment, perhaps your heart is hard. You don't want to go and forgive. How is your heart possibly going to change? Will you read this verse where it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. And you start to consider the beauty of what it would mean to be called a son of God. You start to think about how wonderful and good God is and what it would really be like to be his child. You start to envision that coming day that Romans tells us about when the children of God will be revealed in glorious splendor. You think not only of the privileges that you would have as a son of God, but you think of just the sweetness of God himself and being able to know him as a son. And maybe as you wonder if this could really be true, if you could really be called a son of God, you remember how Jesus came and died for you so that you could be called a son of God, so that your sin could be cleansed and there could be no question of your status before God. And as you ponder just the weight of all of these things and the beauty of all of these things, you find your heart beginning to soften. Suddenly, you realize that your grudge against someone else is so small and pitiful compared to your own enmity with God and how he claims you as a child. And you you realize that God's favor is such a vast ocean that you wonder why you would sit in this little mud puddle of a grudge. And so you take your heart into your hands and you go and seek out your friend or your spouse or your brother or your sister and you forgive them as God has called you to. Again, not because you've just performed some great act of willpower, not because you yourself are suddenly a great and glorious person able to go and make peace with others, but because you believe the word of God because you see a day coming when you could be called a son of God, and because you see that day coming and you see how beautiful it is, you're therefore willing to go and to make peace. And Beloved, it's that way with every single command of God. All of our obedience is to be the obedience of faith. If you fail in obedience, if you are disobedient, It is not because you have some weak will. It is not because you simply are bad at behaving the right way for some reason or another. It is because you lack faith. It is because you are not comprehending rightly in your head just how good God is, just how glorious he is, just how much he loves you, just how much he can care for you and protect you in every way so you in your foolishness decide, well, I think I'm just going to go with what sounds best to me instead of what sounds best to God. And again, the, the puzzle for us in our own hearts is that so many of us in this room have heard so many sermons. We've read so many good books. We think we know already just how good God is, just how loving he is, just how much he can protect us. And yet in those moments of sin, Suddenly, all those wonderful thoughts just start to flee our mind. And all we can think of is, oh, how beautiful this sin is. Oh, how good it is to nurse this grudge. Oh, how good it is to visit this website that I know I shouldn't visit. Oh, how good it is to hold on to my own money instead of caring for this person who is in need. We can think of a thousand ways that in a moment we forget the reality of God, how powerful he is, how good he is. And we instead go our own way. And beloved, it's almost impossible to overstate what can happen in your life if you truly get a hold of faith in God. If you truly grasp just how good God is and just how powerful he is, just how carefully he watches over your life. If you truly grasp that, if I truly grasp that, beloved, we would become unshakable. We would become unstoppable. We would know that there is no force in this world that could possibly be arrayed against us if God is for us, as we just sang. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is the very close of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 verses 32 to 38. Sometimes I use this to, to bless my children, praying that God would do this in their hearts. again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Beloved, this is the power of faith, to do all of those things with joy, knowing that God is for you, and nothing could possibly stop you. Faith turns us from a people who are racked with fear and anxiety and uncertainty into a people who are bold, who are filled with love, who will face anything, even death, and be unafraid because we know the Lord, because we trust Him. And again, you would think that with my ability to diagnose this problem, I would also have the power to cure it. But beloved, I do not have the power to cure these twisted hearts that each of us have. God alone has this power. And we all know this from our own experience. Again, we can listen to all the sermons we want. We can read all the books we want, all the good blog posts we want, whatever sort of content we have, we can try to put it in us. And it can enter into us as knowledge in our heads. And yet we again realize that when it comes time to put it into action, when it comes time for it not to simply be head knowledge and to be something that we actually carry out in our lives, for some reason we are weak in the knees and we are doubtful and we are not sure that God is there. Oh, would the Lord forgive us and would we earnestly pray to God that he would fill us with faith and all the things that we know are true so that we could actually live the lives that God calls us to live. Again, the chapters before us this morning are the story of a person who is in a similar kind of situation to us and that he knew that there were There was something that he was supposed to do. He knew that there was something that God expected of him. And yet, he wasn't sure that he could trust God. He did not know God himself. Again, he knew about God. He knew truth about God. But he did not know the reality of God's power. He did not know the reality of God's love. And therefore, he was cast aside. And so, beloved, I exhort you this morning as we look at this passage, don't don't leave God in a nice intellectual box. Realize that he is living and active today and set your life to the purpose of banking upon him and his reality and his ability to care for you. And if you do that, then I promise you, you will not be put to shame. Just one more note before I go on, actually. One of the things that I am most zealous to see developed in my own children, and so parents, I exhort you in this room in this way as well, and I think this applies to all of us, is I don't want to see my children just trust in a God of the Bible who is really great and really majestic, but who doesn't actually do anything in the world today. Again, such faith is no faith at all. I am saddened because sometimes I do see creeping into my children's hearts a desire to be obedient to God, but but no real awareness of his power. And I don't want that for them. I don't want a lifeless, mundane sort of obedience. That is not the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is filled with anticipation and hope and realization that the, the God who met Moses on the mountain and the God who met David in the valley of the shadow of death and met Peter when he was locked up in that jail is the same God who meets you and me today, beloved. So why am I afraid? I pray for my children most nights, and that is what I pray that I would see in them. I pray that they would also see that God is a God who answers prayer, who changes history, who does things. That God is living and active and on the move so that you can trust him and you can obey him with joy. So moving to Isaiah chapter 7, so that you can understand some of the background that's going on here. You do see hints of it in Isaiah 7, but I think it would help for me just to explain it to you briefly. In the case of Ahaz and Judah in his day, he was afraid because, as Isaiah 7 says, there were two nations that were coming up against Judah. There was the nation of Israel, which was the northern part of the kingdom that had broken away from Judah, So Israel and the nation of Syria, these two nations from the north, were planning to come down and they were planning to make war on Judah. And so King Ahaz was very afraid. Again, we read that this morning in chapter 7, verse 2. It says, When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim. Ephraim is just another name for Israel. Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Again, you could see how doubtful they were of God. Now, the reason why Israel and Syria were teaming up against Judah is because there was a much larger nation further to the north, the nation of Assyria, that was also looking like it was going to come down and it was going to wipe some nations off the map. And Israel... And Syria were afraid of this happening, so they thought, well, if we could team up with Judah, then maybe the three of us together could stop Assyria. But Judah did not want to fight Assyria, and so that's why Israel and Syria got it in their minds that, well, we'll just put our own king on the throne in Judah, we'll put a king on the throne who will fight with us, and then the three of us will be able to fight back against Syria. That was their plan. And so in the moment, Ahaz is looking to his north. Ephraim was a land just to the north of Jerusalem, just to the north of Israel. He was looking to the north and he was seeing how Syria and Israel were coming together and they were about to attack him and his nation. And Ahaz was very afraid of this threat. And so he was considering this idea of going to Assyria and basically asking Assyria to attack Israel and Syria a little early. You know, like maybe maybe Assyria would come down and would wipe them out before Israel and Syria could wipe him out. And so that's the context that we're in when Isaiah goes to Ahaz to talk to him. And so again, Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1, I'm just going to read verses 1 to 9. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And so what was happening here is that Ahaz was in all likelihood going to this conduit to see what the water supply in Jerusalem looked like. Again, he knew a siege was coming, so he was going out to see how prepared they were for the siege. So you can feel the anxiety even in the moment of Ahaz wondering, do we even have enough water to last more than a couple days? And so verse 4, Isaiah was to say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabul, Tabul as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Notice those closing words. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. The actual Hebrew word there that they chose to translate faith is the word that we use, amen. And so it's actually a play on words that Isaiah using. He says, if you will not amen, then you will not be amen. If you will not trust in the Lord, then the Lord will not make you firm. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And in naming all those leaders of Syria and of Israel over and over again, and in the verses prior, it's almost as if God is trying to remind Ahaz, look who is the head of those nations, look who is their king, compare that to me. Compare that to me, who is the head of Judah, who is the leader of Judah, and you are going to fear these people. He won't even name the king of Israel. He mocks the king of Israel as to say, just call him the son of Ramalia, like he can't even remember his name. And so God is saying, I am so much greater, I am so much more powerful than these nations that you are worried against. Why are you worried? Have faith in God, trust God that He is actually able to defend you. And yet, as we consider this situation that King Ahaz was in, we do have to ask ourselves the question, who among us would not have acted as the king of Judah acted at this time? You know you have two nations coming against you, and you are very weak. Again, you're going to see this water supply, and you know that you cannot last more than two or three days. And so, of course, you're going to try and find a solution for your people, right? I mean, what kind of king would just sit and pray or just sit and say, no, I know God's going to take care of us, so, so I don't have to worry about this? Again, especially with our own American and 21st century intuitions, we would absolutely say we have to sort this out. we got to figure out how we're going to save our people. God doesn't just want us to wait here and see his hand of deliverance. We can't just sit here and trust in God. That wouldn't be very faithful. And so instead of choosing the way of faith, Ahaz, and again us, far too often chooses the path of works. Again, Ahaz is in a position where he needs to be saved, where his city, his nation needs to be saved. And God is saying, you have two options for salvation here you can trust in me, you can have faith, and I will deliver you. Or option B, you can try to work this out yourself, and you can see how that goes. And so for the rest of this sermon now, I want to look at four different things that this text teaches us about the difference between genuine faith and works. Four differences between the genuine between genuine faith and works. And what my hope is as I list these four different things is you'll be able to examine your own heart and ask yourself, am I genuinely trusting in the Lord? Or am I going about my life in a way that says I depend upon myself and I depend upon my works for my salvation? So the first difference I want to look at is what is the difference in the heart nature of faith versus work or the heart posture of faith versus works? Well, the first thing we see in this passage is that if your attitude is an attitude of works, then you will be constantly anxious, wondering if you have done enough. Again, Isaiah 7, verse 2, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Beloved, does that often describe your heart? Is your heart often shaking? As trees of the forest shake before the wind? If your heart is shaking like that, it might be because you are looking to your own resources as a means to save yourself, as a means to make your life good and meaningful and rich. Another thing we see is that works is always investigating and planning and trying to tie up every loose end, every contingency, never really at peace with what's been done. Again, this is from 7 verse 3, where we see that Isaiah was to go out and meet Ahaz at that conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Ahaz, he's making plans, he's scrambling, he's trying to figure out how to deliver his nation, but he's never really at peace, he's never sure that he's done enough. He's always going out and trying to make sure that everything is just right, that he hasn't forgotten anything, it's all dependent upon him. So he's always looking at his own efforts, examining his own deeds, wondering if it's enough. Again, do you often find yourself wondering, have I done enough? Am I good enough? That's the attitude of works and not of faith. Because on the other hand, we do see that faith is quiet and peaceful. Isaiah 7, verse 4, what Isaiah was supposed to say to Ahaz, it says, say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Beloved, if you have learned to trust in the Lord, then you know something, again, not perfectly, but you know something of having a still and a quiet heart. Not fearing everything that is around you, your heart not growing faint at every bad thing that is happening or that may happen. Because again, you have confidence in the Lord. You also, faith also sees God's enemies as being very small and insignificant. Again, the second half of Isaiah 7, verse 4. Isaiah says, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. You see, whereas Ahaz looks at Israel and Syria and he sees this mighty army that he does not know how he is going to overcome it. When God looks at these two kings and these two nations, all he sees are two smoldering stumps. So the question is, when you look at the enemies that are arrayed against God, whether that be the enemies in your own life, the sins that you see that surround you, that closely entangle you, whether it be the enemies that you see to God's church, maybe it's here in America, maybe it's abroad, whether it's the enemies you see to God's purposes and God's kingdom overall. Do you see those enemies as being very daunting to God? You're just not sure if God's church is going to make it through. You're not sure if God's kingdom is really going to grow and be built because of all these terrible things happening and because of all the stuff going around in the world. Beloved, that is not the heart of faith. When God looks at his enemies, all he sees are smoldering stumps and foolish people trying to fight against him. And so, beloved, let us not be worried about the enemies again in our own life and even to the ends of the earth. They cannot stand against the power of God. And yet, despite this, again, the attitude of works sees danger and problems at every turn. Isaiah 8, verse 12, God commands Isaiah, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Beloved, if there's one thing I see more prominent in the news around us day by day, it is the development of conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory. This person is trying to accomplish this and nobody knows about it. This person is trying to accomplish this and nobody knows about it. And the whole point is to make us all worried about what conspiracy might actually succeed and might actually tear down the good things that we all cherish and love. But again, beloved, if we trust in God, if we know his reality in his power, then we don't need to worry about every last conspiracy that is popping up on the scene. We do not need to fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now, the very next verse tells us the posture of faith. Isaiah 8, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Are you worried about things going bad on the earth? Are you worried about things going sideways? The only reason to worry that that might be the case is if God himself were to choose that. And if God himself were to choose that, then we know we can be at peace because it is God's choice. It is his will. So we do not need to fear what the world around us fears. God needs to be our only fear. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. More than anything else on earth, beloved, more than any political problem or worldly problem or economic problem, worry about the problem of disobedience. Worry about the problem of yourself wandering away from the Lord or others wandering away from the Lord. That is what we should fear. Not some political party or some other problem that the world faces today. So that's the difference between the heart nature of faith versus the heart nature of works. Again, one is at peace, resting in the power of God, fearing him alone. And the other one is anxious and worried about many things. The second question that I think this passage addresses is why is it that our hearts seem to prefer works over faith? Why is it that our hearts have such a hard time resting quietly in the power and in the love of God. Here I want to look at Isaiah 8, verses 6 and 7. It says, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah." Now the waters of shiloah that was a small stream that flowed into Jerusalem. It was their only water supply. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flowed gently, and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia therefore behold the lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river that would be the euphrates river the river that goes through uh, through assyria the lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river mighty and many the king of assyria and all his glory now beloved these two verses are so profound and i pray that we can just wrap our minds and wrap our hearts around them this morning. Do you see that the contrast that the Lord is making in these verses? He is making a contrast between the waters of Shaloah. It says uh, that flow gently. There's a small stream that flows into Jerusalem. And he is contrasting that with the waters of the river, mighty and many, the waters of the Euphrates. And what Ahaz was doing, most essentially, is he was looking to the waters of the mighty river. He was looking to the waters of Assyria, and he was worried about the waters of Shaloah. He was worried about the water in Jerusalem. In other words, he looked to Assyria, and he said, wow, they're impressive. They have a great army. They know how to get things done. And meanwhile, he looked at the ways of God He looked at the small stream flowing into Jerusalem, and he says, what is this going to do for us? How could this stream possibly save us? And beloved, this is the trap that we so often fall into. We look at the world around us, and things in the world seem so impressive. Business people and armies and everything else seems like they can accomplish so much. They can get so much done. And what does the Lord tell us to do? He tells us to, to preach the word. He tells us to pray. He tells us to sing and to worship. Really? <laughs> this is supposed to be what overcomes the world? This is supposed to be how God's kingdom grows? No, no, these things will not do. We need a lot of fancier things. We need the stuff that Assyria has. We need their river. And so, so many churches today, beloved, go astray looking after every latest business tactic, looking after all the waters of Assyria, not believing that the word of God and prayers to God are sufficient to build the kingdom of God. You see, God has given us means of grace. He has told us how his grace can flow to us, and all the ways that his grace flow to us seem very mere. They seem very small, right? I mean, something like prayer. Who wants to sit and pray? it's quiet. You don't really know if God can hear you or not, if he's really listening. You don't always see something happen right afterwards. It just seems small. It seems like this little water of Shiloah that's running into Jerusalem. How can we trust in that? Why would we sit and pray when we could go out and we could plan something amazing and we could figure out how to make God's purposes go forward on our own? Wouldn't that be better? Or again, what I'm doing right now, preaching God's word. I've heard so many times, this is, you know, this is so old-fashioned. You know, look at how people are communicating today. Look at the great, you know, TV series that are up and the movies that are going up. You know, surely we Christians should get with the new media, you know, and we should be making movies about faithfulness that we can show on Sunday morning, and that would move people more than the preaching of God's word, right? But no, God has given us these waters of Shaloah. He has given us this small stream, the proclamation of his word. And he says that his spirit goes forward when his word goes forth. And so he will work in us by that grace. We don't need the waters of Assyria. We don't need a great river when God has given us this beautiful stream. And yet again, it is so hard for our hearts to rest in these simple ways of God to rest in the the fellowship of the body, the preaching of God's word, the prayers of the saints. We so often think we need so much more. And yet, these verses also make clear what happens when we seek after more. Again, Isaiah 8, verse 7, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. This is what happens whenever we go after our own ways, whenever we seek after something else that the Lord himself has not given us as a means of grace. It always ends up overflowing its banks and overwhelming us. If you think that getting a lot of money is the way to save your soul, is the way to improve your life, is the way to build God's church, then guess what? That money will eventually pile up and pile up until it overwhelms you and you are buried under greed and under avarice. If you think that it's through a lot of clever tactics and strategies, then you will build program after program and you will get people to burn themselves out serving in all these various ways, trying to build your own kingdom. And it will eventually bury you. If you think that beauty is the way that, will, that your life will be saved, that you will get ahead, or even that you can move forward God's kingdom, then what you will find is as you seek after beauty over and over, it will never be enough, and it will overflow, and the idea of beauty itself will overwhelm you, and you will never attain what you think you will attain. And indeed, this is the very thing that happens to Ahaz. He goes up to the king of Assyria, and he says, Assyria, I know you can rescue us. I know you can rescue us from Israel and from Syria. And Assyria says, yeah, I can rescue you. But as soon as I am done with them, I'm coming for you. And so, beloved, we are much better off staying by the waters of Shiloah, staying with these means of grace that God has given to us, trusting that he is able to work powerfully through them, rather than going after every other thing that comes into our minds. Third, what is the result of preferring works to faith? What is the result of preferring works to faith? Well, as I just mentioned, works bring destruction. Whatever we trust in, aside from the Lord, ends up consuming us. If you trust in something other than God, then that thing will someday overwhelm you and crush you. Even if it seems really good right now, even if it works for a year or two years or 10 years or 20 years, destruction is coming. And yet, contrast that with the rewards of faith. Again, Faith is a a small stream compared to these raging rivers of Assyria. It is a small stream, but see what God promises through this small stream. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then a little later on, in Isaiah chapter 9, we see more. About this child that is born to a virgin. Very famous passage in Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. Will do this. Beloved, notice that last line the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice the contrast between the zeal of the Lord of hosts doing it versus us striving with all of our energy and all of our efforts to try to somehow accomplish the same results. Again, Ahaz was part of the house of David. He was part of the lineage of David, and he thought he was trying to save the throne of David. That's why he was going to Assyria. He was trying to save his kingdom. He was trying to save the heritage of David. And by relying upon works, he actually crushes the heritage. But again, in Isaiah 9, verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government, this is the one that God sends, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Again, beloved, in our worldly wisdom, we cannot see how this could be the case. How could it be that Ahaz could just sit in Jerusalem, say, I trust the Lord to deliver me, pray to the Lord, trust in him, walk in his ways, and God just does it. <laughs> How could that be that God would protect Ahaz and the throne of David in that way? When Ahaz isn't going out and doing all this work to try to scramble and find his own plan and his own solution. Beloved This is the way of the Lord. He desires to magnify his own name, his own power, and not our works in our power. And that is why he has chosen very humble means of grace for us to come to him so that when good things happen, we can't take the credit. We can't say, look at this great thing that I have built. Look at this great thing that I have done. No, all we can say is, well, I prayed and he did it. Well, I I, I preached the word and he changed lives well, I I talked to this person about what they were doing and they were transformed so that we can see that it is not us who do the glorious works, but it is God himself. Fourth and last, why should we prefer faith to works? Why should we prefer faith to works? The reason why we should prefer faith to works, beloved, is really just a summation of of all that has just been said. Because if we pursue a way of works, we will not only know anxiety in this life, but we will also know destruction, and we will not see the power of God come about through us. And yet, if we walk in the path of faith, then not only will we know peace and rest in this life, but we also have the hope of seeing God work mightily through us. Again, on no account of ourselves, on no account of our own efforts, but on account of God, who in his own zeal makes his name known. And so I exhort you, beloved, this morning to choose the way of faith and not the way of works. Whatever way you have been going, where you have thought that I can fix this myself, I can do this with my own wisdom and my own strength, just stop right now and turn to God. Turn to him in his word. Turn to him in prayer, knowing again with a heart of faith that he is able to make great things happen. Just to give you one example in closing, uh, just yesterday morning, uh, my sons had their first football scrimmage of the year. And it's a pretty big team. There's over 20 kids on it. So there's like over 40 parents at this scrimmage. And I know that one of them uh, trusts in the Lord, but I don't know if anybody else there is a Christian. And I've gotten to know some of them fairly well because last year we did football too. So I'm, I'm building relationships with them. And yesterday morning, God just put this vision into my heart. He said, What if a revival started among Jeremiah and Josiah's football team? What if every single person here, every single parent here that doesn't know me now were to come and trust in me by the end of this football season? God can do it, beloved. And if he does it, it will not be because I have some great scheme or I have some great strategy to win them all to the Lord. It will be because I go to them, I get to know them, and I faithfully speak the gospel, and God, by his Spirit, does the rest and gives new life. So God just gave me these eyes of faith to see what can happen by God's Spirit. Beloved, there are no limits on what God can accomplish on this earth. No limits. And so if we will simply trust in him, we will simply believe that he can do great things today, just as he has done in days of old, then I believe that we will see God work wonders through us, beloved. My hope is in him. My hope is not in us in our efforts and our goodness. My hope is in him and in the zeal that he has for his own name. So let me pray to that end now that God would make himself known. Heavenly Father, would you, I beg, empower us to have eyes of faith. Lord, I confess, we confess that all too often, Lord, we We think that the ways of faith are boring and bland. We think we need to come up with some better scheme. We think that you should have come up with some better scheme. Lord, forgive us for our arrogance and for our pride. Forgive us, Lord, for taking upon ourselves things that you never intended for us to carry, Lord. Oh, and God, would you fill our hearts, I pray, with just a glorious understanding of your power and of your love for us. A glorious understanding of how you, who are the God in ages past, are the same God today. And so, Lord, would you help us to lift up our eyes to the world around us and see the potential that exists for what you will do if we will but be be faithful. Lord, I ask that you would now receive our prayers of petition to you, our prayers of confession to you as we press on in prayer.